Welcome back to a very special episode of the Charlie Jade Podcast. I am Summer Brooks. I'm Richard Porter. I'm Kevin Batchelder. And with us we have Charlie Jade creator, Robert Wertheimer. We are so, so pleased to have you with us today. Thank you very much, and I want to assure everyone I am not Summer Brooks. (laughs) (laughs) There was a big joke Although I, I have to say, um, if anyone, you know, it's you guys who have kept the, uh, the spirit of Charlie Jade alive. If it wasn't for you guys, God only knows. You know, I don't know if people appreciate how much effort you guys put in, and particularly Summer, who's got the horrible job of communicating with me. <laughs> well, it's, it's very rare to find a really good, smart sci-fi series, and... The fact that when we first started talking about it, it wasn't even on the air in the U.S. And we were doing everything possible to see these episodes and trying to get it in the U.S. and then trying to get a second season. And it just, I'm, I'm sorry it didn't work out, but we had fun trying. Yeah, I know. We, we did, too. It was, it was a really interesting experience. I don't remember whether or not I told you what our experience with sci-fi was and once we finally sold it to them and how uh, sobering it was to deal with sci-fi and how they handled the show. Can you tell us about that, what it was like trying to get the show sold to sci-fi? And Well, we, we all know about them burying it after two episodes at 3 a.m., but... Tell us a little bit about the process. Did they approach you to air it here, or did you approach them? Oh, we definitely approached that. When we were originally conceiving the show, many, many, you know, as far back as 2001, obviously we knew that we were creating something that would, you would think, find a a real happy relationship in a home at a place called Sci-Fi, because gosh darn, there's a little Sci-Fi in in the show. And... uh, We went to New York on a regular basis and and met with executives there who were remained nameless because most of them are Republicans, but at any rate. um, And we tried to sell them the show, but for all sorts of uh, reasons, they weren't really interested. So they said, you know, this is is kind of a a standard thing when you're dealing with broadcasters who are trying to get producers out of their office. They said, gee, you know, go out and make it and then, you know, I'm sure we'll like it and we'll buy it, which can be translated into go out and find the money somewhere by robbing a bank or something or I hope you have a rich relative. And then once you make it for whatever you spent making it, we'll certainly make an offer to buy it on 10 cents on the dollar. But no one will ever admit that. So we went and uh, got into the international co-production game and did finance the show and did get to make it. And then um, we spent... You know, a good two years trying to find a home for it in the United States, and for all of the things that we uh, discussed when first we met, which was the dense content and the fact that you were you were challenged by the show to be attentive, and it was a show that embraced uh, the intellect of the uh, of the consumer, the viewer, the audience. It wasn't popular with the buyers who, you know, were born with fast forward buttons, and so. Through uh, Jim Howell at Park Entertainment, we finally were able to get it to Sci-Fi in New York pretty much as a, uh, not even a mid-season filler, but a, uh, a mid-mid-mid-mid-summer, 
you know, we're just filling up airtime sort of thing. So when I saw their website, um, it, they had a one page on their website, you know, announcing the, the premiere of Charlie Jade, which had, you know, three spelling mistakes in it. So I, I called them up and I said, gee, you know, you're American, you should be better than this. So don't you think we should maybe get the spelling mistakes out? And they went, oh, yeah, sure, sure. And then I went down and I visited them, and they had decided to premiere the show at, uh, I think it was 10 o'clock on Friday, June 14th, which, uh, as all of us know who live in the Northeast, uh, once you hit June and once you hit Friday, you're not going to hang around at home and watch a lot of television. So I went down and I said, well, can we promote the show and do something to let people know that it's going to be out there? And they um, paused for a second and they said, no. <laughs> so I said, how about we go up on the roof and yell at the lunch crowd down in Rockefeller Center and say, hey, there's this show on tonight. Why don't you watch it? They didn't like that idea. So then uh, it ran. And I, as I was going, being escorted to the elevator, I said, gee, you know, if you don't get, like, numbers, what's going to happen? They said, well, you know, you'll probably be uh, rescheduled to maybe, I don't know, another time slot. And I said, like, what other time slot? And they said, I don't know, two, three, four o'clock in the morning on the weekend. Eh, it'll be something like that, but we'll give you a fair chance to build an audience, which was one week. Okay. One, <laughs> one week was their idea yeah, of a fair that, chance. Uh, that, that was about the experience uh, um, we had as viewers. You know, I recall having seen a grand total of one, um, one ad on Sci-Fi promoting the show before it aired. There's there's nothing, you know, anyone I talk to about it, it's like, what? I haven't ever heard of this. What do you mean Sci-Fi is going to have a new show on? And then what, what I thought was even worse was dropping it in the same spot on a Friday night where they had been running the, the Sarah Jane show. So they've been running basically a children's show, and then they suddenly drop in this very adult show out of the blue with almost no marketing whatsoever. So it, it looked like that from, uh, from outside as well. Well, you know, we're, we're now a couple of years since first meeting where we had our first chat together on, on uh, Slice of Sci-Fi, and I now have a far more developed education on how broadcasting works in North America and generally around the world now. And truly, there, are, there is a minority of us, uh, you're included, who uh, hunger for uh, adult programming, who hunger and who are famished uh, for programming that that challenges you, that uh, is an alternative to to hurl or to uh, to wipeout or or bachelorette meets dog. I don't know. <laughs> and the truth is that broadcasters generally have morphed the industry now so that there's no longer much of a pretense of wanting to do intelligent programming outside of cable. And I think, for example, NBC did this year uh, Southland, which a buddy of mine was the designer on, and that was the closest thing that I've seen on network other than the franchises, CSI and those kinds of programs that have, have built an audience and the, the basic cop procedural shows. But it, it was a fundamental decision made by broadcasters generally that it is cheaper, simpler, easier to present cheaper, simpler programming so that you can plug it in and out like light bulbs. And that was not the Charlie Jade experience. And I think the only hope we have 
is that, you know, on cable now you can still see stuff like Californication and Dexter and Big Love and that and that kind of programming, which people like us gravitate towards. Yeah, I think it's just a collective sigh out here because we know there's some of us, but not enough of us to make that dent very much on that, Robert, which is what's so disappointing for us hardcore fans that want to share such a wonderful series as this was. Well, I really appreciate that. And you know what? It's so funny because the Canadian broadcaster who suffered uh, terribly in the last couple of years and actually got bought and absorbed, and, and it's no different up here. Um, you know, we were talking about it the other day, and we're developing a series right now that is so outlandish and so out there and yet accessible. But uh, th there truly was nothing like Charlie Jade. And, I mean, we made a whole lot of mistakes as we went. And we were kind of making it up as we were going often. But there was such a, an extraordinary sense of, of mission on that show. And, and it was very funny when I think back to, to some of the experiences we had in South Africa, where we were literally standing outside my office and I'm going, oh my God, we have to do a season finale. Oh my God, we're going to go, I don't know. It's, it's, this has all happened. We've reached this point. Yeah, uh, ice, that's it. Let's get three big blocks of ice. That's it. And they'll, they'll melt into a what? What? A gourd. Yeah, that's it. A gourd. That's it. And we'll make something of that. Yeah. That's, that's, we, we haven't done that yet. Yeah. <laughs> And, and, and who's going to direct it? I don't know. Uh, we'll figure something out. And we were literally standing in front of my office, and people were writing in their notebooks, and they were going, it's 110 degrees. How are we going to get ice? I don't know. I'm Canadian. Get some from somewhere. <laughs> well, you, you, had mentioned, you had mentioned that Sci-Fi Channel said, go off and make this and talk to us later. What... What was it like having an international production? Because this was this was co this was Canadian and South African together trying to create this vision. What what was that uh, that like putting that together with an international cooperative? Well, here's the thing about international co-pros: there it's incredibly good and it's incredibly bad. It's like the best crystal meth taken once too much. The thing about what, what an international co-production certainly allowed in something like Charlie Jade, it, is, it allowed us under the international co-pro rules, which are, which are all designed for content, um, to access South Africa in a manner that allowed us to, um, to register the production as indigenous production under the co-production rules. That's a lot, of, uh, a lot of stuff to explain that co-production trees in cultural industries were designed to counter the, the, the heavy, heavy onslaught, the tsunami of American programming. And it allows different companies, uh, different countries to twin together and amalgamate their financing, their limited resources into what was supposed to be competitive programming. And it's all tied to tax structure and financing and like you can basically, under co-production, you can hire a South African actor, and he would qualify to, under the treaty as a Canadian content actor, allowing you access to all the cultural funds that helps finance. So that's good and bad. What ends up happening is that you become drowned in the bureaucracy and the rules and regulations of multiple countries and multiple banking systems, multiple um, currencies and exchange rates. And I mean, I, I don't know if we discussed this before or not, but I mean, we were under the, 
we, we almost got shut down two or three times uh, in the development and pre-production state uh, period where um, we would uh, create these long-distance phone calls before we'd even close the bank, um, as opposed to when you're doing a normal a studio show or a Warner Brothers show where they just write you a check and you make the show. Um, under an international co-production, the first thing is you retain ownership, which means you also retain um, responsibilities. So if you go over budget, you're dealing with a finite number of dollars, as opposed to going back to you know, the studio and saying, oops, we screwed up, can you send us more money? Uh, that's one of the big differences. The other big difference is, is that we would start conference calls because we didn't have Skype back then and email and whatnot, and it would begin with uh, the Canadian broadcaster in Toronto and their lawyers, and the Canadian completion bond company and their lawyers, and my uh, company and my lawyer, and my Montreal partner and their lawyers, and the foreign distributor in London and their lawyers, and then the bank in Quebec and their lawyers, and then the bank in Johannesburg and their lawyers, and then Sasani Studios in Cape Town and their lawyers, then the collection agency, Vintage, in Scandinavia, and their lawyers, and finally my partners in Cape Town, uh, the Imaginarium, and their lawyers, and the conference calls would start to deal with the legalities of the contracts um, at about 8 o'clock in the morning and go on till 8 o'clock at night in these conference calls. And of course, I was in charge of creating. So I'd be running around, I'd be giving everybody a blessing, and then I'd go off and find locations and deal with the directors and scream at the writers and rewrite crap and come back 12 hours later. And my partners would be puddles on the floor and the speaker phones would still be on. And they'd still be arguing about the you know, fine legal points of the deal. Does that paint a bit of a picture? Scary. Yeah, well, that, that we is how it works. It, it well, it really is, isn't it? It really is, and I think it's because uh, was that Richard? That's no, Kevin. Hi, Kevin. I think I think the only reason we did it is is we had an expression on Charlie Jade, and it was called "too ghastly to contemplate." And every time we got close to the abyss, and we put our houses up as collateral again. Or, or some zipper head from, a, you know, from the bank in Johannesburg said, you know, producers make too much money. We want you to defer 85% of your entire take home. We would just look at each other and go, too ghastly to contemplate. So let us explain to you why we can't do that. Because we've already pledged our houses. Uh, wow, wow, wow. <laughs> so you wanted to be in TV. <laughs> <laughs> This makes us appreciate what we got even more. I don't know about you guys, but that's certainly for me. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, but then again, what was the other side of the coin? The other side of the coin that once you survive that process, kind of like walking to Aqaba and back across the anvil three times with a teaspoon of water, what you get is those incredible South African locations and access to actors like Danny Kehoe and, and uh, Michelle Bergers and... and things that we could never have gotten. And, and I never thought this show would succeed if we shot it in Toronto or, or, or Vancouver or any of the places where people could recognize it. In South Africa, uh, particularly Cape Town, hadn't been overshot by that point, and it allowed us to complement the three looks so well. Ganiverse, Alphaverse, and Betaverse were quite doable in, in K-Town, even knowing that Alphaverse, for the most part, was going to be a CGI experience. 
So if you you'd originally spoken with this is Richard by the way if you'd originally spoken with uh, with Sci-Fi and wanted to do the wanted to do the show back then, what was your location plan? What was your your plan for where to do it and what the look and feel of the show would be? If Sci-Fi had said, "Hey, this sounds like a a great pitch. Here's some money. Go out and do this for us." What what do you think you would have you would have uh, done? Where would you have gone? Well, I originally had wanted to do it in New Orleans, which was interesting because the process actually is a little bit cart and horse. What happened first was I was shooting in Toronto at a place called Gun for Hire. And a guy walked in, who, and it was run by a South African. And, and a guy walked in who was also a South African, Izzy Kadron, who was partnered with uh, Chris Rowland at the Imaginarium. And we all sat down. We, just, we were introduced by Albert Bota, a South African, who was running Gun for Hire. And they just said, hey, you know, we've got this new company in Cape Town. We hear you're, you know, a pretty crazy guy. You know, we'd like to do a project with you. Why don't we explore doing international co-pros? And I said, that's great. I'd love to. So Chris and I just kicked around ideas over the phone. And then they persuaded me to fly to, to Cape Town and sniff around and see what it looked like. So I grabbed Steven Zoller, who was a friend of mine, who was a way more experienced and a real professional writer. I was a, a fraudulent writer. And, um, and we flew over to Cape Town. You know, um, we basically paid for one seat. And I put Steven in the bathroom and said, don't come out. So we arrived 12 hours later because they can't afford your seat. We arrived in Cape Town and wandered around, and, and, it lo- and the downtown around Long Street looked so much like New Orleans, I originally set the show there. And then we, we approached Sci-Fi, Chris came over, and, you know, we spent a, a long time, years, trying to figure out how we get this damn thing financed. We had partners in England, and it was a three-country cobra, and it was a this, and it was a that, and it fell apart 12 times, and I off- went off to India to work with my friends on a show called Water, which ultimately got nominated for some Oscar, but I didn't do that one. We got thrown out. All kinds of crazy things happened. And ultimately, the people who stayed with it was Chum, which was the, the now no longer Canadian broadcaster. And, and really, we had one champion there, Diane Bohm, Diane Bohm, and she just kept pushing us and pushing us to, to, to make the show. And, you know, under the co-production rules, we were dealing with SABC uh, broadcaster in South Africa and her in Canada, and that meant we couldn't do we couldn't shoot in New Orleans. We had to actually shoot in one of the two host countries. And but we would approach Sci-Fi and we'd say, "Look, we're doing this crazy series, but you know it would be easy just to sit back and criticize Sci-Fi. I mean, God knows I wouldn't have to be awake to do that. But the truth is." they probably did the right thing. I mean, here come these two crazy guys who had never done a one-hour drama before, let alone something as ambitious as this. And they walked in and said, hey, we want to do this one hour, and it's about three parallel universes, and we haven't written it yet. Uh, you know, can we buy your lunch, and then you should just make it. And they looked at us justifiably like we were crazy and said, call security. <laughs> now, when abouts was this when you first approached them to do this, Robert? Probably it would have been as far back as 2002, 2003. Wow. You know, they were, they were also going through a lot of internal changes themselves, you know. I can't remember who owned them then. But as we discussed, I think, once on the air, the whole business model of broadcast is, is a difficult one. And they have very difficult decisions to make on a day-to-day basis because, you know, they're, 
the front door at these places are revolving doors. They're, they're turnstiles with so many people coming in trying to sell so many things. I mean, one of the shows that I love is uh, Big Love that's on uh, HBO. But, you know, their exec one of their executive producers is Tom Hanks. It's hard to turn Tom Hanks down. And it's a lot easier if you're uh, an acquisition executive or a creative executive who's trying to sell your boss on a show that you know if it does well, you've got a future. And if it doesn't do well, your kids are going to be selling pencils. It's a lot easier to say, hey, look, we want to do this show. We got Tom Hanks attached. Then we want to do this show. We got Bob Wertheimer and Chris Rowland attached. Aren't you excited about that? I don't think so. <laughs> well, that was then, though. Today, I'm sure it would be different. I don't know. <laughs> it's a, it, it, it is a lot harder now. We're into doing one-hour dramas. That's what I'm about. I'm, I am about anthology series. I'm about stories that take a long time to spin out, and, and it's about characters. And it's about people. I think the success of Battle, uh, Battlestar Galactica is a true testimony to that there's an audience out there for that where the story takes as long as it takes to tell, and people uh, have a thirst for it, and they, they now have PVRs, and they tune in, and they, that's, that's the stuff that we want to do. The problem is finding, because they're expensive, uh, and reality TV is so cheap, it's very hard to convince them to do it. So if they are going to do it, they're going to want to say, okay, well, we're, we're dealing with John Wells, you know, and, and he did ER, and we're dealing with the people who have this track record so that when the whole thing blows up, you can all look at each other in your executive suite and say, but, but we had John Wells. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's take a really quick break and come back and delve into the story of Charlie Jade. Oh, God. <laughs> Two million tons of spinning metal, all alone in the night. A world where empires rise and fall, where dreams are born and die, where war and hatred are challenged by love and faith. In the third age of mankind, an age plagued by an evil empire that seeks to destroy humanity, it is our last best hope for peace, for victory, for freedom. It is Babylon 5. <laughs> do, I to, do I have to put an explicit tag on this show? <laughs> My God, you guys are easy. We know him so well, and yet we did not see that coming. <laughs> what the hell show is this? It's the Babylon Podcast. Only on Farpoint Media. And we're back with more Charlie Jade podcast. Uh, a, an in-depth discussion of all the questions you ever had and never even thought you wanted to ask about Charlie Jade. And... Uh, I think we're going to get a lot of good answers out of Robert because this is as near and dear to his heart as it is to ours. That's why I'm short and ugly and live alone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I know, I know, 
I know Kevin, Kevin had a lot of questions about certain plot intricacies. So we're going to let him start off with those. Damn. Well, lots of directions to go, but uh, it's funny. When we were doing our last podcast, Robert, talking about the last few episodes, there were a few points we were very curious to hear your thoughts, and it might be, as you described earlier, just something you all did standing out in the street coming off the top of your head. But uh, one of the things folks asked multiple times about on the forums when we asked them to submit some questions was talking a little bit about how the mention came up that uh, Brian Boxer had a file on Charlie Jade. Maybe you could talk a little bit about where that came from, or if that was a well. It was. It was. It had occurred to us by that part of the season. We were, we were reaching the finale, and we had survived a horrible drama of our own, which was we ran out of money, like in episode eight, and so we did a whole series of episodes. In if anybody's in television, they're going to be stunned by this. We were turning the scripts around in five or six days and shooting first drafts instead of second or third drafts, which is unheard of. And by that time, we had sort of done the three-card Monty game, and I realized that we were kind of like supernovaing the end of the season, because it was unlikely we were going to get a second season, even though Chum wanted to do it, and they got me to do a whole bunch of work. But I was building towards a complete crazy finale that would conceivably trigger a whole bunch of cliffhangers that would then be answered in season two, but not at all. If any of you are familiar with a tremendous uh, series called The Wire, what I learned from The Wire that I really enjoyed was that they set up a certain set of scenarios and characters, and then when they came back for a new season, they did a complete 180 shift on the central character and the gravity of who the story was about as they worked their way through all of the uh, dimensions of the city. So what was ultimately going to happen was I was building towards this finale where I realized that we created a situation or bracket, painted ourselves into a corner, closed bracket. We got to a point where Charlie was traveling through the water, O1 Boxer was traveling through the water, Brian was traveling through the water, and everybody was either captured, locked, or had already gone through the portals, and they were special people. And like people with special sight and special vision, like Jedi Jody was, they were special. And our ultimate plan was that as O1 Boxer, got more intricately involved in Vexcore and ended up taking over from his father, it was clear that people knew about Charlie Jade and there was a file on him. Now, Vexcore and all those corporations had files on everybody. They were a combination of Halliburton and the CIA. And because of Charlie's special status, I mean, the show was called Charlie Jade, we were going to reveal there was a familial connection between the boxers and Charlie, and you could easily examine the first season and say, but there'd been no indication of that. How could that be? Well, then you have to watch the second season, which was, was actually what I was birthing. And I've now since sent a special secret, secret blueprint document to Summer that explains all of it. And now on the air, we will give you her, her home phone number so that you can phone her all across America to find out what actually happened. 
Watch out. These these are pretty powerful Charlie Jade fans. They they will be in the <laughs> My poor inbo- my poor email inbox is gonna get bruised. I know it. Well I'll tell you if um I'm I, I deliberately didn't send some of the document that's the actual season two blueprint or the script that we we were gonna trigger the season with. Uh, other than to tell you this. For those who are fans of the show, one of the most one of the most pleasing things for me was episode one and two, the pilot that my very good friend TJ Scott directed. And as you recall, it kind of begins with the blue Charlie J car driving on the wet streets. And it's an introductory segment and then the camera whips into a rear view mirror. And uh, the character basically introduces himself and says, my name's Charlie Jade. Well, in season two, we were going to reshoot the entire sequence, and the camera was going to whip into the rearview mirror, and the character is going to say, my name's Charlie Jade, only it was all one boxer driving. Whoa. Oh. And that's, that's leading into our other okay. bigger question of that was the whole idea of Charlie and 01 being brothers, clones, siblings, you know. We were doing a lot of speculation on that in one of our recent podcasts. Well, here's what happened. We really created the whole Link Space finale sequence uh, really by the seat of our pants. We had gotten to this whole place where we knew uh, that Charlie had to go home, and, and the show had evolved in the writing to a place where we realized the show had morphed and changed into something bigger, bigger, deeper, more special, i.e., what were the characters feeling and what were the characters about? And we realized as it went along, not necessarily completely by design, like a show I'm doing now, I designed the entire thing from beginning to season ender, but we were really making Charlie, Charlie Jade up as we went. And we had reached a point where Charlie had gotten back to Alphaverse in my favorite episode, episode 17, which is Flesh, as opposed to waiting to the very, very last episode, like so many shows would do. Rumor has it, Charlie Jade was a kind of different show than most shows on the air. I don't know. Some people say that. I don't know. But at any rate. So what we were, we were trying to do there was to, to tie uh, the fact that we had established Alphaverse, Betaverse, Gammaverse, that we were half an hour in the future, as you might recall, uh, when Blues looks down into the water, it says one half hour from now. We were, we were playing, and we were playing with things like time, and we were playing with things like multi-dimensions, and we were playing with things like parallel universes, and we were playing with, you know, who were these goofy guys in the gray suits? Well, what happens is, is all of that is a setup to what we were eventually going to do in season two, where all of those laws of physics were altered. Everybody was not where they were supposed to be. And O1 was Charlie, and Charlie was O1, and Charlie was running VexCore, and O1 was a detective named Charlie J. Uh, Gammaverse had become kind of what Iraq is today. Lubinsky would end up in an insane asylum because the only one who kind of knew what was going on. And it was, a, it was an opera of how they were all going to come back together and realize what had happened. And it was all tied into the men in the gray suits whose role was to bring us back because, you see, they were the ones who had invented time. And they were trying to bring us all back to the beginning, to the Big Bang, before 
Betaverse is vaporized, which of course you wouldn't know unless you'd seen the second season. They were bringing us back to the beginning of time. Why? So that we could get it right for once. That's fascinating. And traveling through link space altered everybody's reality. Just like the old thing of, okay, you go back in time, and if you're supposed to die on such and such a time on Fifth Avenue, but some, like McCoy runs through the intersection and knocks you out of the way, all time is altered. Gee, if Spock were to meet Spock and have a conversation in, like, a movie, I don't think that's possible. <laughs> but at any rate, obviously they do in Hollywood. But at any rate, if you go back through these guys and you totally alter things because Link Space had saved Betaverse, which was destined to be vaporized, changing the deck of cards of the parallel universes, then all bets were off. So it allowed me to connect those two with the uh, transfusion. Is that clear as mud, kids? A little bit. Yeah, but it's mud I like to play in, so that's fine. <laughs> this is clear, and it's all in that it's, document uh, I sent. I sent to Summer this morning. Yeah, that I'd make a mud pie number, out of that. which is five 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 So we have the Men in Gray are really your version of the of the Time Lords. Uh, <laughs> they all look like Obama. Uh, Obama I hope you noticed. Uh, and. We have them rewinding time to be... <laughs> no, they wanted to rewind time. That's their main purpose in the universe. But because O1 and, and uh, Charlie went through link space, they upset the natural order of things. Because, you see, the portals connected Gammaverse, Alphaverse, Betaverse, mm -hmm. but link space, which clearly was invented by Dennis McGrath and myself when we were desperate, you know, on caffeine really, literally, we're shooting in a week. What do you want to come up with? I don't know. But it all started to make sense once I could sit down and, and really start thinking, if all of these things are in play, where can I go? The men in the gray suits were, the, you know, just like the, the, the terrorists who grabbed Rena. They were all representative of things that were happening in our society. And then I realized, because I had taken Charlie Jade so far from, you know, uh, going from Alphaverse to uh, Betaverse and finding himself again and getting home and realizing that home is where he, he is, not some apartment with a good-looking girl in it, that he was supposed to be with Blue's Paddock, all of those things, it made it very clear to me that without using something as cliched as altered time, I could alter the natural order of the universe, which is a lazy way of getting out of jail free. Okay, let me see if I get this straight. <laughs> the Have I completely... Uh, it's all in the document. I'm it telling is. you. Okay, okay. I, will, I want to go back and read that. But So the men in gray were going to let Betaverse get destroyed and then rewind things so they could fix it. Right. Their ultimate objective was to take us back to the dawn of natural time, which was the Big Bang, and obliterate the universe so that the process could begin again, so that they could correct all the mistakes there's a whole section in there that's based on science. It's based on dark matter. And I took the idea from reading an article about dark matter, and also somebody had put in my head the thought that, you know, in the universe, if you traveled in one direction fast enough, long enough, you will come back to where you began. I read that somewhere. 
So, believe it or not, these goofy TV shows come from things like that, and they're all rolling around in my head, and I was just riffing on it, and I, was, I, I decided I would try and do it. Now, what talking about that with the with the the gray suit guys in the finale as we're watching Charlie and Owen get the transfusion, the camera pans and we see. They, let me interrupt. They get very very insulted if you call them that, but they're the men in the gray suit. <laughs> <laughs> the gray suit guys they play for a different team. <laughs> All right. Well, if I'm never heard from again, we'll know why. Um, but. <laughs> But in the finale, when you pan around with Charlie and Owen getting the transfusions, there are a lot of people getting transfusions, it looks like there. What was the thought on all that? That there were more special people. It was simply, um, it was, first of all, I, for really selfish reasons, I felt if Owen and, and um, Charlie were alone, uh, it would look cheap. And because it's the uh, last image of, of what was potentially the last shot of the last episode, I didn't want to look cheap. And then, um, believe it or not, uh, at one point in this very dense period of time in my life, I was in an elevator. And the elevator had mirrors on all the sides, which created the illusion of an endless, you know, that endless thing where you see your reflection uh, going off infinitely. And so the designer uh, and I were talking about it, and I said, well, what are we going to do to make this thing look like something? Because we're shooting it on location. We're completely out of money. I mean, it's like, what can we do? And so he said, well, let's, you know, lock off the camera, and we'll, we'll put some other people in there. And then, you know, Stefan Laundry was there, the, the effects guy. We're literally making this shit up as we go. And he said, yeah, it'll be like infinite. Like, there's an infinite number of them. Like, remember in Close Encounters, they had all those goofy guys that were going to get on the mothership and fly God knows where. Okay, we got a bunch of people in these hospital beds because they're clearly special people too. And maybe no one will ever ask me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm both honored that I did and also scared that I'm now exposed myself, so I'll be quiet now. Well... Really, you know, um, little nanotechnology is going to come out of your computer when the interview will all be killed. <laughs> but I'll sure go with a smile on my face now, just based on this conversation today. I will say that. Kevin, if, if you suddenly recall a camping trip that involved a lot of spiders, you should be very afraid. That's all I have to say. If you suddenly see spiders on your arm. and <laughs> Oh, yeah, that uh, one. Uh, that one. That, we weren't very proud of that moment. <laughs> that wasn't a very good moment. But you see, it's interesting if you analyze, like obviously you guys have the whole season. What, what was so difficult for us was that we had to change writers in midstream. We literally, because of, of the focus and the emphasis on the deal and the financing and the casting and all the things that the, the trials we went through before we actually got to the thing, we were literally writing as fast. Literally, Jeff and, and Carl and different people would come in my office and all my partners said, you're crazy, don't let me in your office, just lock the door. But all these guys, except for Michael, who played 01. I wouldn't let him in my office. I just wouldn't because I valued my life too much. And, but everybody else would come into my office and they'd go, hey, look, we just got the draft, you know, and, you know, we, 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 
we want to talk about some of this goofy dialogue. I said, look, I'm, I'm a first-time showrunner. You can't say it's goofy. I mean, I'm insulted too easily. But all right. We would sit there and we would, we would kind of run the lines as opposed to traditional television shows where you've got a staff of 7, 8, 12, 15 writers. If you're doing friggin' blind date, they've got, you know, bigger writing teams than we had on Charlie and Jane. And they would do actual, you know, read-throughs with the whole cast and then they would go away and do a polish. Well, we were basically doing it on matchbooks. And we were, you know, I was writing dialogue on napkins and say this, okay, but it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, but I'll edit it. I don't know. We'll figure it out. And we, you know, there was only one or two times, like when Rena and Charlie met at the pool at the seashore, that, you know, I got a panic call. You know, I came down here. Patricia has no clue. And, you know, Patricia was remarkable playing Rena, and, and she would say stuff. And, and, and I had to go down, and I, it was the only time I was really dishonest, and I stood in front of an actor, and I'd say, uh, it's because of this, and that, and that, and this, and the natural universe, and, you know, uh, I don't know, you know, and, and George Bush is really a nice guy, believe me. And they, they and that was the one time, but I, I remember once we were on a soundstage, and Michelle Burgers, who plays S.O. Ronkin, you know, she's about 11 foot tall in stocking feet, and, you know, she, uh, you know, uh, she's gorgeous, and she's standing there, and I took an apple box and a chair, and I went and I stood on the chair, and I stood before, and I said, you know, uh, do you know what you're doing? She said, I have no idea. And I said, do you understand any of this? She said, nothing. Would you like me to explain it? She said, absolutely not. Okay. Yep, just just winging it. Okay, I'll just just read this right here. Okay, no problem. There is something to be said for classically trained actors. There's something to be said for people who don't who don't subscribe to method acting principles. That's right. As opposed to somebody like Michael Flipwitz and you know, who's a really really intense guy. And I get these SMSs from Michael. It would be like, We have to talk and I'd ignore it. And then we have to talk. No, you know, coming, you know, my phone would start to heat up. No, no, no. And then, and then, you know, I'd hear like this whimpering outside my door. He was literally in the ADR stages where we were revoicing and redoing the lines. He'd lie in a ball on the floor, whimpering. My performance. I go, come on, grow up, get up, get up. The microphone's over here. Come on. And you know, and I would just, I would just never answer his phone calls, and that's why I'm still alive. <laughs> but, uh, so so tell us tell us tell us a little bit more about the the change in the writing staff what brought that on and how quickly did you pull together alex and dennis and the others the new team that was uh that was probably the low point of the entire experience now don't forget charlie jade began as a um a conversation between Chris Rowland and myself in 1999, because I know I spent New Year's Eve in the New Millennium in India, and we were on the phone talking about it. When the time came to hire a staff of writers, we were, we of course didn't have enough money, so we only could have three, and Rizola had been with me from the beginning. And it was felt, uh, we first of all, we had to hire, uh, under the, the umbrella of the co-production, which meant we had to hire... Canadians, and we were also operating under an interprovincial, which meant so much money and so many salaries had to be Quebec-based, and so many salaries and so much money had to be spent through Ontario, and so much money and so much had to be spent in South Africa, or we would blow the co-production treaties. 
So that restricted who we could hire. It was also felt because I had never really written before and never really showrun before that I needed to be surrounded by more experienced writers. Well, more experienced writers, we only had a staff of three, which is insane when you're doing a high concept thing like this. Uh, my partner in Montreal, Robin Spry, um, he rests in peace, a great guy, had worked with a couple of Ontario-based writers, and they're, they're, they, they came with a good resume, but they had done more traditional stuff. And um, it was problematic because I was running around really inventing stuff as I went. I wrote the first two, and Stephen, you know, then took the first two and said, well, this is really fantastic stuff, Bob, but do you think maybe we should put it in English? I said, okay, you do that part. I just got the idea. So Stephen would do the polish. And then when we got um, the original staff over there, there was a great deal of friction. And the friction was caused as much by my my methods of having seen showrunners work and my total obsession with wanting to do a show that no one had ever seen before. And I was supported 110% by the two most important components you have to have in order to survive, which was the primary broadcaster, again, Diane from, from Chum, and the key cast. Jeff and uh, Michael and uh, Patricia all were in Cape Town making this goofy show that was in some multi-dimensional, multi-universal language because of me, because I had found them all and auditioned them all and hired them all. And unfortunately, because of the volume of work, because of the pressures of the job, because, and I can't begin to explain to you except it happened to me, the extreme emotional stress that you're under when you, for example, kill yourself writing a script, uh, trying to get a, like I was, I was taking first drafts and rewriting them over the weekend, 25 pages a day, handing them to an AD and basically collapsing. And then the other AD walks in and kind of nudges you with their shoe and says, hey, where's my draft? Because I'm going into pre-production mode and start shooting these episodes. And these guys that we had originally who were more veteran Canadian television writers were not well armed for that. And because of the nature of what we did, they weren't equity owners. They weren't in the position that I was in. They didn't have backers, financiers, broadcasters. And it was also, I was trying to do something no one had ever done before. And I think some of those some of the evidence of that is in Charlie Jane. I mean, the way I edited the show and mixed it and the way we worked with FM and the music, and it was very, very hard for them, particularly seeing as the cast and the broadcaster uh, really put their faith in me. So we reached a point right around episode eight or nine that was exasperated by our financial crisis. Uh, we had a whole bunch of people from AIG running our finances and Citibank. Oh, no, no, that's a different story. <laughs> and uh, they basically said, we can't carry on. And uh, I was so overworked that what happened is Robin Spry and Diane, very unusual to have this kind of support from a broadcaster, rolled up their sleeves and said, well, we have very few writers who can get here fast, but 
there are a whole bunch of them, and we have uh, a sh we were looking for three, and I think our short we had a list of four, so we didn't really have a lot to choose from. So I got on the phone with Sean and with uh, Dennis and um, um, Alex, and again under the restrictions of the interprovincial under the international copro, I had to make Alex the head writer because of how the structure of the contracts with, between the countries were created. And I talked to them over the phone, then we FedExed them a bunch of cuts and a bunch of the scripts, and then they, they, we got them back together on a conference call, and they said, uh, no, we've never seen anything like this. This is unbelievably ambitious. But of course, like all writers, they said, we can do this, we can do that, we can do this. Anyways, we hired them on the spot. We put them on a plane, which in Dennis's case is really something incredible because he's a 300-pounder. And we flew them out to Cape Town, and we picked them up at the airport, and uh, I rented them an office away from the production office, and I basically beat the crap out of them for the next 12 episodes. And uh, they did Herculean work, Herculean work, particularly seeing as because of the financing crisis. You know, what you normally do is you write a script, and you have weeks and weeks and weeks to polish it and work on it, but the production schedule itself is normally at least for one hour of this type, seven days before the next one goes to the floor. Well, because of the completion bond uh, losing their minds because we were projecting a million-dollar overage, we ended up lopping, uh, a, what was it, about four weeks off our shooting schedule to save money. So we were turning new drafts around every five days and going to the floor with main unit in five days, which means we were really literally shooting first drafts. This is wow. Yeah, that's um, that's crazy. That's 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 absolutely crazy. Is what that is. I used to be taller. <laughs> I actually want to. I actually want to jump in with a, a a question about the basically the last episodes that the the first writing staff worked on, because they're they're all very they're very similar structurally. That uh, that three episode run that that follows and not a drop to drink. So we get the the big reveal in the fifth episode. That uh, Owen Boxer can travel between dimensions by pouring a little water over himself. With, by the way, a brilliantly shot first scene as he's you know being pleasured in the uh, in the alleyway and then pours water over himself. But the next three episodes are all very similar: Dirty Laundry, Diamonds, and Devotion. They Charlie's kind of you know this this great private investigator. He's sitting back there very passively. Carl drags him into, could you please investigate this thing for my friend or this person I met? And then suddenly it has to do with, uh, do with Vexcore. Or in the case of Diamonds, it's, you know, he just wants to go get his ring back from the pawnbroker. And then he finds out that Vexcore is involved. What was your feeling on those, on those three episodes? I mean, because they, they don't, I mean, they, they, move, they move overall story forward a little bit, but they sort of feel like, especially after the big revelations, they feel a little bit like Charlie's just kind of idling for three weeks. Well, and that, there's a number of things happening there. Some of it's good and some of it's not so good. You might uh, draw your own conclusion that we decided to uh, change the writing staff right around then because we also felt the show wasn't, wasn't reaching its potential. And there was some friction between that, that group of writers and me and that group of writers and, and Jeff. But there was also something very good that was going on that was by design, 
when you when you articulate that you don't understand why Charlie was actually passive at this point and wasn't the initiator. That was actually a conscious decision I made, and it was a very nervy one. And I had to, a long conversation with Jeff about it, which was we wanted to, we, we had a show called Charlie Jane. He was a central character. But what we didn't want to do was Mannix. We also knew that uh, we had a very strong energy source uh, that was Michael Filippowitz portraying O1 Boxer. And also, Rena had done an unbelievable job. Patricia had done an unbelievable job in hers. And we, we realized that we had a bit of a genie in a bottle. So on the one hand, I didn't feel that the writing was reaching its potential. And I share your uh, assessment of it, that, the, that, that there was kind of a lull there. Partially, it was because we were inventing the story as we went. We were breaking stories as opposed to being six, seven scripts ahead. But also, one of the things that I was experimenting with was that where was Charlie's head? And I kept asking myself, how would you feel in his position? Well, I don't think I'd be that motivated, you know? I don't think I'd be going out and buying Blue Jays tickets. I wanted to portray a guy who was conflicted, who was truly lost, who uh, traditionally would have been, you know, gung-ho, rah, rah, let's go. But I wanted to inject into his character a cynicism and a sense of being defeated. And the reason why is that no one, no human being I had ever come in contact with had ever experienced what he had experienced, which is to go through a portal to a parallel universe, a pretty amazing thing. And what I was trying to do with the show was not to do what I used to call the Beverly Hills cop factor. The Beverly Hills cop factor was Axel gets shot in the arm at the end and kind of laughs it off. It's like Starship Troopers at the end. What's her name? Denise Richards gets impaled by an insect. And in the next scene is walking arm in arm with her two heroes like nothing happened, like maybe she had a, a, you know, a bad fingernail. And what I tried to do with Charlie Jade was not only to do things as realistically as possible, i.e. when he got into this huge fist fight, he really bled and really was sore and the bruises didn't go away, but that had to happen to him emotionally. That had to happen to him because then he had dimensions. And as it turned out, it worked. Because by the time we get to episode 17 and he gets back, and this is what I think was the best thing I ever wrote, was he's sitting there in the rain and he says, it's the smell. You know, you can always recognize a place by how it smells. Because I wanted a character that could live in a movie, a cinematic kind of existence. Now, I don't think we were achieving it. Uh, through those episodes that you've identified. I don't think we pulled it off properly. But, but that was the rationale. And it was, my, it was by design, as opposed to everything else that we just made up, uh, that Charlie would be conflicted and troubled and not a two-dimensional hero who could just figure stuff out and be, you know, uh, be a rock and roller. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that adds a lot of different insight. Yeah, that... Uh it is. It's, it's, it's also pretty much what I kind of felt the answer might be. I mean, the fact that Charlie's behavior changes a little bit after, um, after that when the, when the new writers come on. It, that piece of subtext kind of shines through in, in how the episodes are. Um, also, 
the growth uh, the growth arc of, of Charlie from an extremely cynical, extremely fatalistic and, and nihilistic character into somebody who, who discovers that he can't really survive comfortably in a world like Alphaverse anymore at the end. I mean, it, it, certainly, it certainly fits within it. It just, well, I mean, you, you know, those three episodes don't, they don't work as well as, as they should. No doubt. And we were going through a terrible time. I mean, that particular time, we were under uh, such unbelievable creative pressure. I mean, I was, um, a lot of people who do one-hour TV will tell you that when you hit episode four or five, it is, it is a, a, a special time. Episode four or five is the hardest time, particularly in a first year or first season of episodic television, because you are, no matter how hard you work, you can't catch up. All of your initial episodes, which everyone's judging everything, are laid up, they're on the operating table. Nothing's finished, nothing's mixed, everything, you're, you're casting, you're editing, you're writing, you've got the machine, the, 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 uh, the trains left the the station and nothing's finished and, and truly you don't think you're going to survive. And there's usually a creative lull through episodes four or five, six or seven where, where all the creators will tell you they literally want to commit suicide because it's just, it, it's so hard to do. And then all of a sudden you wake up one morning and the routine starts to work. All of a sudden, episode seven, episode eight, assuming you don't have a really evasive, invasive, if that's a word, network, who's sending you, you know, like I know I'm, I'm involved with a show called The Bridge that will be in mid-season at CBS, and there's 13 network executives on it, and, and you know, that's not conducive to getting it done. 13? That's a lot. It is, but thankfully I don't have to deal with them. I'm involved in other stuff. I just have a small ownership position in that, which keeps me protected. <laughs> so going, you know, we're talking about the use of, well, I guess the big reveal that one travels by water. What was behind the thought that water would be used to help the people who could shift, shift? Okay. The, the easy, cheap answer that I used to use then and I'll use again is that water was the core element of the entire show. It was the element. It was the resource. It was what Vexcore was stealing from Gammaverse. Water, again, it was an article I read in Popular Mechanics, talked about water and, and how important and how in our future water will be more valuable than platinum or diamonds or anything else. And we needed a device. Uh, we just needed a device. And we sat around and uh, uh, we thought of all these different things. And what we wanted to avoid was the fly. We wanted to avoid putting O1 Boxer in a machine that would then have a complementary machine on the other side. And so we were sitting around, and I think I was in the middle of the cut of, of the pilot where, you know, the big water stream is coming into the cooling tower. and, and we sent it up the flagpole, and at that point, nobody thought I was crazy. So we said, he uses water because we want to constantly return to water. And at that point, we were playing with the idea, which, which you saw at various times that we didn't really develop properly, where Charlie had visions into parallel universes, i.e. the train that, that hit him in the opening that wasn't really there. It was something that we were trying, and, and we, were, we were playing around with the idea that as Owen walks to walk along the uh, sidewalk, for example, he walked by a construction site, and the placards 
the, the construction walls would would disappear and there'd be nothing but water there and and it, and it all was feeding into the the, the storyline that was developed for developed for not a drop to, to drink but then we got all caught up in all sorts of other subplots and other storylines and I think again around the time that the writers changed and so it was a Charlie J reality and and I remember sitting with Guy Mullally I think it was and he was saying you know the thing about sci-fi is you know, you've got to know your science down, and you you have to have an answer for everything. So, um, short of inventing a machine that didn't make any sense, we we just decided to go with the water theme, and it just played out, and we just stu- you know threw it, and it stuck on the wall. Cool. Are these are these answers any good? I mean, is this what you is this okay? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, these are these are great answers. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thanks. Yeah, is so is 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 water the connection between all of the special people or is how did these people become special? What made them special was that they had a second vision. We never really uh mined that correctly because frankly we had a lot of other balls in the air. So I remember when the question came up, uh should we do the work, should we explain, should we uh, get into what made uh, Jedi Jody or other people special. Uh, I decided, for whatever the reason was at the time, that we had other fish to fry. Why are clairvoyants clairvoyant? They just are. And so that was basically uh, our attitude. We, we had so much on the go. Uh, whether or not we ha- we would have gotten more deeply into that in the second season remains to be seen. But we never really got into that other than to just have that they are because because Owen and Charlie and, and Brian uh, Boxer had this this uh, sort of second sight, this ability, which, you know, again, what was going to happen in the second season was uh, a lot of those things would have been discussed, as you'll see in the, in the document I sent you. It was a subconscious thing. It was a thing, it was like a third eye for them. Very interesting. In other words, um, I think the short answer was I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I made it up as we went along. <laughs> well, we did do a, a fair amount of that. We did, you know. We did. We had to. We there, there just was no other way to do it. And I'll tell you, the pressure of being in that little writer's room and going, so what are we going to do? And I mean, like I might have said this to you before, I mean, I'm very proud of episode 17, Flesh, and I'm very proud of the finale. But, you know, I'm very grateful to Dennis McGrath and to Alex Epstein at that point because it was Alex's turn to do the finale. And we were, we were really going to push the envelope because I really didn't know whether we'd ever have another life. And we really wanted to take this show to another level. And I think it does. And uh, Alex was having a lot of trouble with that script. And really, that script was Dennis McGrath. He, he, you know, I, I took it away from Alex and gave it to Dennis with about two days to go to the deadline. And Alex, as opposed to most writers who would have been, would have been hurt or would have had an ego issue, recognized and was a real team player and just said, you know, well, what else do we need? Well, at the moment, you know, I'm busy shooting 17, 18, and 19 as well. And so we need a rewrite on that. We need, a, we need this. And I got to do a polish on that. And he just rolled up his sleeves. And, and Dennis, you know, really, uh, Dennis um, in two days really created that show. And then, you know, 
I mean, we were just flying by the seat of our pants, and um, uh, it's just an incredible experience. It's just an amazing thing as as a fan to sit here and and having watched the series, you know, now multiple times for for the brilliance of what happened, and to hear what you folks had to go through on the back end, and and the the seat of the pants approach. It it just shows how you could pull out the brilliance and and make it look like you you know had this laid out weeks in advance. Well, you know, there there is one factor that would not be apparent to someone who isn't close to the fire. The reason that I believe shows succeed and some shows fail, and there are two measuring sticks. One is people like your show or a lot of people like your show. Uh, If you listen to the advertising community or you listen to the networks, the only successful shows are popular shows. So, for example, the top two rated shows right now are, again, it's dance-type shows. Uh, can you, do you think you can dance? Those are successful shows because of the volume of viewers. In the case of something like Charlie Jade, which you couldn't say is necessarily a successful show because of its short run and the fact that it, it for whatever reason, didn't generate the volume of viewers that uh, we all think it deserved, is uh, it got to the state it did, I believe, because people believed I knew what I was doing. And because they believed I knew what I was doing, particularly Diane, uh, the broadcaster, and the cast, far more than my partners who thought I was out of my mind, I was protected. And because I was protected, I had the confidence to say, yeah, that makes sense, link space, sure, and then... And there'll they'll be those three pieces of ice, and they'll be representative of stuff. Nobody had a clue what the hell I was talking about. But they believed that I did. And because I, they believed that I did, and they had faith in me that somehow it would all come out in the wash through the post, through, you know, the color, you know, through the timing and the music and the mix, they would go with it. And, and they would literally, I would, they would literally say, we have no clue what this shit is about, but Bob does. And I, I think it's a, it's a testament that the cast did what they did. I mean, it's compelling to watch. And that the fact that all of us want to see more because of the story and because of the cast, that you, you should really, really be proud of that. I mean, I wanted to see more of Charlie and Blues. I wonder what would have happened if O1 and Charlie had started butting heads, you know, four episodes sooner. Uh, on a regular basis, you know, just basically like two alpha wolves circling each other, testing each other out for a, a long extended period of time would have been fascinating. Well, I did, I, we didn't allow that to happen by design also. Very similar to the previous question about why did Charlie act a certain way. I was confronted with a series of problems. One was Michael Filippowitz in that role was remarkably dynamic. And uh, I might have told you the story before, much of his hair and wardrobe was of his own invention. And he is just a, a natural powerhouse. And the rules were different for his character. He could be outrageous. He could look at Galt and say, it's about your ass, and then lick his finger. You know, I mean, the, Charlie couldn't do that. Charlie was somebody else. Charlie was much more uh, of a 
tortured hero. And the problem, and what I didn't want to have happen, was I didn't want it to become like all of those shows and all of those movies where the good guy and the bad guy, who are supposed to be really good guys and really bad guys and really heroic and really dangerous, have a constant series of fistfights and shootouts where nobody gets hurt. It's just too lazy. It's just too cheap. Again, it's the Beverly Hills cop factor, where, or the A-team factor, or that horrendous piece of junk, the latest Terminator movie, where everybody is running around using nuclear weapons and, you know, and, and not even getting sinusitis. I'm not into that. I'm into, you know, you back out of your, car, out of your garage and, and you're not paying attention, you're going to fuck up the fender. And, you know, and that there are consequences. And I did not want the show to become Beverly Hills Cop. And if I had had Charlie and O1 in, in a regular series of encounters, it would have, it, it's a classic example. If you look at the Alien series, the first one was by far the scariest because the, the, the alien monster uh, had the impression, gave you the impression of invincibility and, and uh, true, there's true fear there. You have the same thing with the Terminator. There's no question that the first Terminator movie, the Terminator monster is indestructible and truly frightening. You know, uh, what's the other one? There, there, there are a whole series of these movies where they get into, you know, the economics of it and the sequel uh, just becomes cheaper and cheaper in experience. I mean, look at, Pre uh, what was it, Predator? The first Predator movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger was remarkable. And the more you go to that well, uh, the more uh, the possibility is that you're cheapening your own franchise. Okay. Well, the, the, the discovery, uh, or actually the revelation, you know, 01 makes to, to Charlie and the examination of what, you know, Carl and Charlie looking at what 01 said and the discovery that, yeah, he's really doing what we're doing, only better. That that was mind-blowingly delicious. Well, that all comes back down to, and I think it was one of the questions that you guys asked, uh, what was, you know, uh, really what was Rena and her buddy doing with that bomb and the pilot and where did that come from? Well, what was going to be revealed in episode two is that Rena actually knew O1 right. and that O1 provided that device. See, O1's ultimate objective through most of the first season was to protect Gammaverse, even though we never had him look at the camera and say, I need to protect Gammaverse. And so everything was going to fold in upon itself, but in my particular way, which is you really got to pay attention and let things play out. I think that, that came through pretty clearly. Um, yeah. Owen's time in uh, in Gammaverse, it was it was pretty clear how important it was to him and how important that it stay as as close to its uh, its current near pristine state as possible. That certainly came across. That's why my favorite episode by far is that episode where his father goes and kills his family, and uh, it was it was episode seventeen, uh, and that's the one where Papa Louie basically is convinced by Charlie to sacrifice herself in order to, and, you know, I, again, I, I can't equate, I can't articulate how proud I was to, 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 and this was a big thing over there in Africa that, that, the, you know, the Halliburton, the Vexcore was busted 
by a black woman and that she, you know, sacrificed herself and she was the cosmic hero, not Charlie. As you recall, Charlie is standing in the rain watching the broadcast while she basically blows the whistle on Vexcorp. You know, this, this stuff doesn't happen normally on television. It would be Charlie's play because he's your hero. But we really were trying a lot of different things. I actually have a, a, a quick season two question. I want to go back to what you'd said earlier about you know reshooting the opening and and uh, you know the the camera reveal in the in the rearview mirror that uh, that Michael Filippowitz would now be would now be Charlie Jade. You know everything that we that we know about you know about Michael's performance and uh, you know both both from watching it and and you know I, I had an opportunity to interview him and from everything you've said, what do you think he would have brought to to Charlie that would have that would have been different. What do you think it would have been like for him to have played that, you know, more controlled character? And also, what do you think? Uh, what do you think uh, Jeff would have brought to Owen Boxer? Well, it's a really good question. That's a fantastic question. Uh, one I hadn't really thought about uh, carefully enough. That is a really good question. I think Michael Filippowitz was capable of anything. Um, I think he's one of the finest actors in out there, and, and he, you, you never see him very often because he's crazy. <laughs> I think it would have been a lot tougher for Jeff to play, uh, I think he would have embraced playing a villain, but the ultimate plan was that there was a murder mystery and it involved Blue's Paddock, and that them, they, they would have uh, reversed roles but ended up in, in much more of a dance as what Summer was alluding to while they tried to learn to trust each other and unravel the cosmic mystery that they were all caught up in. But to get to the core of your question, I think Michael would have uh, brought a tremendous dimension, a physicality and a sexuality to it uh, that's different from Jeff's. And I think that Jeff playing the part of a villain, I think he would have taken to marvelously, as you see some of the other roles that he's had, he, he, he's, uh, he's pretty powerful. It was a very interesting dynamic for me, one that I didn't see coming. Nobody did. It wasn't just for me. But when we saw as the show progressed, uh, a lot of people, uh, and again, it's very funny when, when you look at things like Rescue Me and you've got Tommy Gavin, who's an anti-hero, and you have uh, The Shield and you have Vic Mackey, who's a murdering, adultery, gangster, drug-dealing cop. The thing that's interesting is you're compelled to watch these people even though they are typically not the type of characters that you should root for. You've got Weeds, where you've got um, the mom is a broke dope dealer. You've got Breaking Bad, where you've got a chem, got a chem teacher who's got lung cancer who kills, murders the competition and puts drugs on the street. You've got those kinds of shows. You've got Dexter, which revolves around a central character who's a serial killer. So these are the kinds of characters and situations that I find entertaining and, and I'm drawn to. And I think that we would have taken them into uh, that kind of a dark place. I mean, we, we experimented and didn't do very well. I mean, we had some colossal failures as well as victories. I mean, the whole S&M thing with Jasmine didn't work and the whole, that one main special bottle show where Charlie and O1 are together in the factory and, and O1's, you know, a very bad prisoner. It was an interesting experiment, but believe me, a lot of it, we were just saying, okay, here's the situation. How can we do it? How can we do it differently? And uh, maybe it'll work or maybe it won't. And, and really, 
you know, look at that situation where Charlie was torturing a one boxer. I mean, there aren't many leads that, that can get away with that other than Dirty Harry. <laughs> Is there any chance of doing anything Charlie Jade in the future, be it uh, a miniseries, comic books, animation, anything? It's, un it's unlikely, uh, and it's complicated, but the, for example, uh, the major broadcast entity behind it here, Chum, was bought by a bigger monolithic ABC, NBC, CBS style network up here, and the rights were transferred to them, and they have absolutely no desire in doing that kind of programming. They go down to Los Angeles, and they're very proud of, of the type of programming they buy, which they have every right to be, but it's not that kind of programming. Uh, the reaction in the States was not uh, successful enough for all the reasons we've discussed other than some syndication people who have approached me and said, look, you know, what if we do this? Could you do it? You know, blah, 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 blah. But then the next hurdle would be uh, the, the South African co-production, which are sort of like um, whatever, Hero or Sunset Clauses. We would have to, we would be tied to those partners and their uh, ability to fabricate 48% of the financing has been truncated because the bank that they would use, the SABC that they use traditionally, is out of the entertainment business. Mm. And so they would, um, they would be hard-pressed to come up with what would be legislated by the treaty as their portion of the investment. Uh, it's further complicated by the fact that none of these actors are under option anymore and have all gone on to other roles and other, other things. Is it possible? If, you know, always if there's a will, there's a way. I think the creative could be done. But I also would be hesitant for another reason. I would be hesitant because I think we experience something unique. I think we experience something really, really special in that unbelievable sort of siege that we were in in Cape Town when we made this thing and the year that followed when I was in Montreal freezing to death doing, you know, music and, and all the rest of it. And uh, I doubt very much whether at this stage, after this length of time, we could reassemble that cast and get the same energy that we had then. I think it was a special time and a special collection of people and, and exposing them to Cape Town. I would be hesitant to go through it again just simply because I think we would be constantly comparing to what we did a few years ago to what we were attempting to do now. And um, the very core of Charlie J being so mysterious and so unconventional when it comes to clarity and and linear storytelling it would be it would be uh, uh, quite a, uh, an interesting curious task <laughs> what about moving into something like graphic novels or just novels well it would come down really to me doing it and um, I've never written a novel before but um, you're not the first to ask the question, but I honestly feel, seeing as I had never done before, nor have ever done since anything like sci-fi, uh, there are professionals out there like Robert Sawyer and his ilk who are better 
attuned and better trained and better focused on how to write sci-fi commercially. And my interests and my focus and my my head is not so much into sci-fi anymore because, frankly, having lived the last nine months in Los Angeles, that's as much science fiction as anyone can handle. <laughs> uh, really, what happens on a day-to-day basis, and I'm actually not joking, what happens on a day-to-day basis in the United States, particularly in California, you know, between, you know, penal, you know, enhancement commercials and Republicans and Democrats and, and the credit crunch and executive pay and, and, and the list is simply endless. What's happening in healthcare, what's happening in our world needs a true examination and a true, you know, and I, and I think the ultimate objective of all of us is to defeat probably the greatest disease that's affecting us, which, which is very complicated, but it's apathy. And, you know, all the things that are happening in our world today that, that seem to be unfixable because of, of our general sense of being overwhelmed and our sense of apathy. And I think if we can, if we can look at what's happening inside the world, in our world today, I think that that may be a more, more uh, effective use of our time. Uh, I found that doing sci-fi and writing graphic novels or any of the above, I, I found it created a situation where my head was in the clouds and I was fantasizing and I was looking at our world and making obvious connections to, you know, Halliburton is Vexcore and Vexcore represents, you know, all those companies and, and Gammaverse is, is, you know, Bikini Island being exploited for its resources. but. But, you know, when you do sci-fi, as you know, and we've discussed at great length, you, your, your task is to reinvent everything, to reinvent the world, but you have to have an answer for everything. And, and if you're going to create new worlds, you know, you have to, you know, you have to say, okay, how, how, do, how do they transport from the transporter to the planet? And you need to know that sort of stuff, and that's a full-time job. It's a dedication to that, to that genre. And, and right now I'm, uh, I'm focused on other things. Uh, I actually had a, a, a real short follow-up question. So, you know, you're not your your background wasn't in writing science fiction, and you're you're not looking forward to writing much of it in the future necessarily, and that's that's fine. Were you much of a of a consumer of science fiction? No, I um, I believed that Blade Runner was was not only the finest sci-fi film I ever saw; it was one of the finest films I ever saw. I was attracted to more reality-based sci-fi, but I wasn't, I wasn't drawn to it the way a lot of folks are that I know you, that you, you guys come in contact with, including yourselves, who are fascinated and, and entertained uh, uh, by sci-fi as, as a mainstream thing. I never was. I, you know, uh, I was more into gangsters and gangster stories and, and um, history and political science. And, and when we came up with this idea, it, was, it really just started because here I was in Cape Town, this really unusual, crazy place, and literally Chris and myself sitting around at his place uh, at Hout Bay going, well, let's try sci-fi because we just literally had no clue what we were getting ourselves into. And the more I did it, uh, like I said to you once before, I got almost everything you see in Charlie J, almost, from
from a couple of flights back and forth across the ocean where I, you know, I had the, the floor in front of me covered with popular mechanics and popular science magazines where I looked at future tech. And I looked at that sort of stuff, and, and I wanted, like, if you look at the gun, you know, if you, if you look at his wardrobe, you look at a lot of that stuff, we were trying to make stuff that, they, that people would, would come into. But so, I'm sorry, to focus and answer your question, really, sci-fi was never uh, that big a deal for me, because I never saw anything that could compare to Blade Runner. And the reason that Blade Runner worked for me wasn't the technology, it was the emotion, it was the character, it was when... Um, who was the bad guy in that? The um, the the android uh, that Rutger Howard played. What was his name? Um, Roy Batty. Right. Batty, yeah. When he when he on the rooftop looked at Decker and said, "Time to die," and he he bowed his head. Oh, come on, it's that's that's the Wizard of Oz. The, it doesn't get better than that. Uh, I just want to say that uh, as someone who is a fan of a longtime fan of sci-fi and um you know grew up grew up reading you know both in genre and outside the genre you did something that that most mainstream writers simply cannot ever do you didn't you didn't repeat a 30 or 40 or 50 year old idea thinking it was the most original thing in the world you know you didn't you didn't give us uh heroes thinking that wow no one's ever seen superheroes without costumes before or, you know, to, to make another, you know, slightly bolder example, a friend and I were, were talking about Cormac McCarthy's The Road the other day, and, you know, he commented that he was almost done with it and he really didn't like it. And, and then we both agreed that its fundamental problem is that it's, it, it, while it's, it's a well-written book, it, it feels like McCarthy thinks this is, you know, wholly original material that he's, he's talking about when post-apocalyptic fiction is... Well, I mean, it's as old as the atomic age, and he didn't really tread any new ground in it. Charlie Jade treads a lot of new ground. It doesn't rehash old ideas. Well, th- thanks. I really appreciate that. And I think that, that I think the only reason that Charlie Jade actually appeals to you guys beyond a surface level is that if you really stop and think about it, the, the things that are memorable for me in Charlie Jade is the look on Rena's face when she bites into that apple and the look on her face when she looks and she's lost and lonely and the look on Charlie's face when he realizes, you know, he, he didn't know anything of what he was doing and the look on Carl's face when, when they throw the money at him and the look on Owen Boxer's face when he discovers his family has been killed and the look on uh, Rompin's face when she burns. Uh, it's what, what Charlie Jade had that, I believe was the core of its entertainment value was character and characters who were caught in a completely impossible situation that made absolutely no sense regardless of the the argument of the science and it was how they felt and how they reacted and it gets right back to to Summer's question uh, or uh, one of the questions why did Charlie act a certain way he did because he was lonely he was upset he was living in somebody's apartment, you know, and he, he didn't have his own shower. And he had a pretty good life there with this bay back in this place, you know, where they ate sushi. And he was lost and frightened and frustrated and uh, lonely. And that was what the show was about for me. And when we finally figured it out, 
and it got into the it got into the core of those episodes where Charlie came to realize, oh my God, I I don't need to fight to find the portal to find O one to go home. Home is actually here in Betaverse with Blue's Paddock, and it will never really be my home unless I sacrifice myself to save it. And and that was uh, I'd like to say it was our original design. But actually, it evolved as the performance and the writing and the storytelling evolved. Well, <laughs> well, we've got a uh, couple of last tiny short questions. Uh, is there any development on Region 1 DVDs? Because I know a yeah. lot of fans really want to see this show. Well, Jacques Pettigrew, who owns uh, one of the companies in Quebec, Cine Group, informs me that there'll be a DVD release in Quebec, which is, a, because it's Quebec, it's their own territory. Um, I think for your fans, if any inquiries they want to make for a North American DVD, they should contact Cine Group in Quebec. Uh, it's an animation company. They do Tripping the Riff. And um, Jacques Pettigrew is my partner there. He's the head of the company, and they should... They've got a website, and you can track him down, and you guys should get all over him to, to get, because uh, uh, he's in charge of all that, of getting a DVD release for North America. I know he's, um, uh, we've made a sale in Quebec. We'll, have to, we'll definitely have to have some uh, links to that on the website and have send people up there to send him emails on that. Oh, yeah, bug Jock as much as you can. And if you can get him to return your calls, you're a better man than me. <laughs> <laughs> ah, good. A challenge. I accept. <laughs> yes. We can only pass around our own copy so much. we got to get more people into this. Really? Right. Robert, did you, did you, did you shoot on, on film or, or video? Oh, uh, HD. But what you see, it was still advanced. So what we couldn't afford because of our money problems was to actually... See, everything that's shot now on HD is also posted on HD, but we were actually mm -hmm. right at that middle stage. So we shot on HD, which was remarkable because nobody thought we could shoot outdoors with, um, with HD. And, but we finished more conventionally, which really hurt our sales. Uh, because we couldn't actually mm -hmm. deliver an HD product, even though the the original source was HD, and um, it was a, it was a great experience for us because uh, we had two tremendous cinematographers who had only shot 35 before, and and uh, they became quite proficient in shooting HD. Cool. Have you ever uh, considered approaching Directv because they have this thing called Channel 101? The, you know, the 101 channel on DirecTV, and they are currently running Smith, which I liked and disappeared from CBS way too soon, and also The Nine, which features Jeffrey. And they're showing them without commercial interruptions, and they're showing the, you know, eight, nine, ten episodes that were made of each one. They'll run them, and then there'll be a couple of weeks break, and then they'll run them again. So, in the United States? Yeah, in the, in the, uh, on DirecTV. I think it's U.S. and Canada. Well, um, I'll look into it, but my understanding is due to the contract that was signed with Sci-Fi, they own the U.S. territory. Ah, oh, correct. And, and because Sci-Fi had the first run, I think they've got a second run window, which they, I don't believe, um, utilized because Sci-Fi is truly not a supporter of the show. So you have to wait until that contract runs out? I'm pretty sure. I mean, I'm pretty sure. I'd have to check 
with uh, with Jim over. Uh, I'll send an email out. It's a great tip, and I'll 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 see what I can find out because that is a good tip. Uh, direct TV, and I will find out because yeah. I don't know. And my last question is uh, about the soundtrack because I am completely enamored by uh, FM Lesseur's music, and I know I had spoken to him that he had plans on putting out a full soundtrack. Do you know if that's still on board? Absolutely not. <sighs> Crap. Again, it, it's an issue of dollars and cents, and the show commercially was not successful. So it, it just doesn't, it, it just uh, depresses the motivation for all of those things, all those wonderful things that can happen. Now, if, you're, if you know FM and you're really nice, he'll send you a DVD of the whole soundtrack of all the things like I have, all the, all the stuff we bought and all the stuff he created. But that will be for your private listening pleasure. But I, ah. want, I want other people to hear it. Yeah, we want to share. <laughs> well, it's, it's very frustrating, but, but it's also you've got to be realistic. And, yeah. and see, the entertainment business really is a business about big corporations. And big corporations justifiably uh, are about profit and about um, their own product. And unfortunately, Charlie J. did not make a big enough impact regardless of the Herculean efforts of all of us on the phone right now. It didn't make enough of an impact in the U.S. marketplace. And granted, that was really my fault because I didn't make it accessible enough, but also sci-fi really wasn't interested in, in making it a success. But if sci-fi had had a more... Uh, successful experience in its broadcast, that would have opened all those doors. Mm. Now, does 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 FM still own the rights to that? Could he self-publish a CD, or is that owned by Chum? You know, I don't really know the answer because it's so complicated because rights went over to CTV from Chum. Chum no longer exists, mm. and they were absorbed by a bigger network. And so uh, it adds a layer of complication. And you see, people would have... You know, people would make the effort if they knew there was a market. But the truth is, outside of our circle, you know, if you were to release that, the average consumer wouldn't know what it is and wouldn't be, unless they were made aware of it, just like a program. So, you know, you go to the expense of, of sending out, you know, really what we should do, and, I, and perhaps I'll talk to FM, is we should just offer it up on the Internet somewhere so that people can can download it. But again... You know, if, if you're not turned on to the show like you guys are and you just, you know, you have a, a choice and, you know, it would be great if it was offered at the iTunes store. But, yeah. but their question is going to be, what is it? You know, and who, how many people watched it? And is it, you know, is there an audience for it? And, and those are, you know, uh, interesting questions. Hmm. So, I know iTunes does support a lot of unknown and indie artists. So that, that may actually be... A question to pose to FM and to whoever owns the music right now, but uh, we will definitely we will definitely make a, a point to let Jacques know that we are interested in a in a DVD release. That'll be something. I know, and and I know that FM. I think FM honestly feels it's the best work he ever did, and um, I think it's the best work he ever did. And if he sent you uh, what I have, which is the um, CD, I guess, there's still CDs, right, CD of the music, 
It's, he did an unbelievable job. Unbelievable. And I almost fired him, you know, at the beginning. Uh, he just didn't get it. We flew him over to Cape Town, and he was like, he was, you know, like a lot of people, he wasn't properly, he hadn't opened his mind far enough to what the potential of the show was. And we walked down those roads together. It was just him and me, him and me. Uh, you know, I would I would spot the show with the effects guys and the and everybody, but I would do the music spotting separately with FM, and the two of us would just look at the show together, as opposed with all the other folks in the room who were doing effects and ADR and Foley. And and I I always felt that music was was one of the key components. And you know, through our unbelievable financial crisis. We managed to always pretty much protect his budget, and we, we, we spent money on music that most people today, certainly not Canadian shows, would never dream of doing. Well, it does, not to take you too long, but for, for a bright guy like yourself now, with the explosion of the Internet and distribution models that way, I mean, do you see yourself getting involved in some of this, or are you kind of staying more in the traditional TV markets? Well, right now I'm, I'm working in, in a traditional way, but I guess one of the key news items that you would have seen was that advertisers are paying more money today for what's on uh, Yuhu. Did I get that right? Hold on. Hulu? Uh, Hulu. They're actually paying NBC Universal more than they are for programming, regular programming. Wow. Uh, which I think is a first. So right now... I'm caught up in, in more traditional one hours. I, like everybody, wants to be uh, involved in, in the Internet experience. The problem for all of us is, again, it's, it's a mysterious place, and, again, it's become more and more and more the, uh, in the entertainment side of things, the, the uh, territory of big corporations. And they, they're just looking to transfer those advertising dollars from what traditionally were made uh, available via uh, Nielsen ratings and traditional television measurement to hits. And the thing about dealing or competing with big corporations is they have the resources and the staff and the money to control these mediums. That's why, frankly, I'm so uh, I'm so enchanted with Apple TV. I don't know if you guys use Apple TV down, uh, down there. Do you guys know what that is? Yep. Yeah, so I, I use Apple TV a lot, and um, I know that you know uh, we're designing a one-hour drama up here, and the one of the more traditional funding sources that we use up here called the CTF, which is a government-backed funding source that augments the uh, broadcaster's license fee, has been retooled this year. That unless you have an internet uh, a, uh, an internet component that is slave to your programming. Without the internet component, you don't get the funding anymore. So I think we're all going to be there uh, one way or another. Yeah, we had uh, we'd recently done a story on Slice of Sci-Fi about uh, people doing original programming for Xbox Live. There, there are actually like series out there on Xbox Live, and that blew my mind. Yeah. You know, funny, getting back to that question you asked earlier about sci-fi and myself, upon reflection, you know, I think it's, it's highly unlikely that I will ever go through the marathon of inventing something from the ground floor up like, a, like Charlie Jade was because it was such 
a voyage of discovery, and I had no idea that I was getting myself into something that hard, that big, that much work. And frankly, it's only fun when you can actually make it as opposed to being part of the committee. But you know, you've got me thinking now as I look back over this and I look back over some of the stuff that we were planning for season two and you know, who knows, maybe with the right collaborator and the right setup and the right team and maybe something that's already franchised so that you're not completely inventing universes, let alone the wheel might be something I might get my head back in into where I can come in and, and maybe have some influence or some or, or be of some help to somebody who's who's actually got their chin in the in the fireplace. You know what I mean? Awesome, awesome, awesome. Yeah, anything we can do to assist, we stand at the ready. <laughs> well, I really appreciate it. Really, if it wasn't for you guys, Charlie Jade would have simply disappeared. And uh, you guys have been it's have been it's it's uh, I don't know what the, I don't know what to say. If it wasn't for you guys, there really would be no Charlie J. Well, thank you very much for giving it to us to gush over. <laughs> cool. cool. As, as Rich said earlier, it's not often we get our minds yeah, expanded thank you here. Yeah, creating it. <laughs> you know, in the sci-fi side, so it's it's just wonderful to to be challenged like that. Well, thank you very much. It means a lot. I mean, you know, you sit out here by yourself and you don't get that kind of feedback and, and it's great. And, you know, I'm, I'm really happy that we were able to, to get your attention and to entertain you. And uh, I can only tell you this, every time I see the cast members again, whatever city we're in, they cry because the, the, they just never had an experience like it. And I'm really happy that you guys like it. Excellent. Well, thank you for spending your afternoon with us talking about Charlie Jade. My pleasure. Anytime. Anytime. I'm at your disposal. <laughs> and that'll do it for the Charlie Jade podcast. This is uh, Summer Brooks wishing you all well. Go out and find the show. Go out and follow the links to send Jacques Pettigrew an email saying, yes, we would like a DVD that for, the, for Region 1 that we can watch on our large screen TVs. <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye-bye. And that will, that will conclude our examination of Charlie Jade. Uh, this is Summer Brooks wishing you all well. Go out and find the DVD. Go out and encourage Jacques Pettigrew to give us a DVD. How about that? Yeah, you, you will be rewarded. This is well worth your time, folks. By all means, follow the forum links you know, on the charliejade.net site because we're all very still in tune with it and looking for any information to help share this with the rest of the uh, community that will very much enjoy it. So we need to keep this fire burning. Yeah, Charlie Jade is a, is a novel on television, and it's dense and thick, and, and it will reward your time and effort and multiple viewings. Okay, so to all you Charlie Jade fans out there, thank you for taking this journey with us, and take care. Bye, all. Bye. For even more news, information, and conversations about the amazing worlds of Charlie Jade, visit charliejade.net. This has been a Farpoint Media production.